God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have blessed us with so much. Help us now as we go through the book of James in these six verses. Lord, help us to understand, apply. Lord, convict us. Um, we pray, Lord, uh, that you will uh, just work your wisdom in our hearts, Lord. Help us to understand and, and do as you call us to do here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to think about the last time you bought a phone. You went to the store, and maybe you got the latest iPhone. Let's say it was the new iPhone 14 Pro. And the salesman sits you down, and he starts to show you this really nice, shiny phone. Maybe it's your favorite color, red or yellow. And he mentions all the new features, like the camera, of course, the battery life. And when you're about to buy it, he tells you, Well, there's only one small issue with it. This phone won't allow you to call anyone or text. Oh, yeah, and it doesn't connect to Wi-Fi. What? You tell that salesman, that phone is useless. No, thank you. Today in the book of James, we will discuss something else that is useless, a dead faith. So why don't you open up to James chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 to 20. Last week, we spoke about fulfilling the royal law. It was the second part to foolish favoritism. And we are either obeying God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, or we are showing partiality and acting like evil judges. Those who obey God are commended, and we ought to keep loving our neighbor, knowing that it brings glory to God. Those who disobey God are convicted as lawbreakers. If they do not repent of their sin... They will be condemned for eternity. For those that appreciate God's mercy with them, they will be shown compassion forever. And we know we are grateful for God's mercy when we show mercy to others, when we are willing to forgive those who have wronged us. Now this week, uh, we're going to begin a section in our text that will be divided into three parts. The first part will deal with the dead faith that I just mentioned. The next two parts are going to be examples of a living faith. In today's lesson, I want us to discuss the debate of faith and works, observe the major issue of a dead faith, examine different translations for a difficult verse, and explain what a demonic faith looks like. So why don't we get into our text? James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. If you got it, say amen. amen. All right, here we go. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? But brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And so in these verses, we need to address the faith and works debate. There were some in church history that denied the book of James because of these verses. We also want to observe the issue of a faith that doesn't have works. James will give us another illustration to better understand what faith without works looks like. Additionally, we see that James is going to restate that main idea of an incomplete faith. And so I want us to examine ourselves to see if our faith is alive or dead. And so let's begin with that faith and works debate. So because of this passage, Martin Luther, 
to whom the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which was a precious truth for him, depreciated the whole epistle and termed it a right strawy epistle without evangelical character. Timothy Wingert, he studied Luther and wrote a book titled Reading the Bible with Martin Luther. In it, he mentions that Luther's main criteria in judging scripture was if the books show you Christ. To him, the book of James just preached the law, not gospel. And when he said straw epistle, what is he getting that word straw from? Well, if you know 1 Corinthians 3.12 about building a foundation uh, of Christ with either straw or gold and precious stones. And so what Luther's trying to say is James was building on the foundation of Christ, but he only uses straw in comparison to gold like John, Peter, or Paul. I mean, we did just speak about fulfilling the royal law. And so does Luther have a point here? What do you think? Is the book of James... All law and no gospel? What do you guys think? Hmm? No. So I think Luther had a conflict with the book of James that was unnecessary. The book of James points to the gospel in different ways, and we observed that in the last couple of months. Luther even said this in his preface uh, to the book of Romans. He says, It is impossible to separate works from faith, as impossible to separate burning and shining from fire. And so Luther did believe that a true faith is one that has works. Um, But when he was reading the book of James, he was misinterpreting it. Another point of tension in this debate is if there's a contradiction between James and Paul. So James, look at verse 24 here of chapter 2. Look what he says. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And if you read in Galatians 2.16, why don't you go there. We're going to see, whoa, what what happened here with Paul and uh, James? Are they contradicting one another? Look at uh, Galatians 2.16. It says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And so what do you think here? Is there a contradiction? James is saying justified by works but not faith alone. Here, Paul is saying justified by faith, not the works of the law. There's no contradiction. Why is there no contradiction? What, what, what would you say? What's the reason you think? Put those thinking caps on. This is not easy. Yeah. No, that's great. So we need to understand the context of both passages, right? They're handling different issues in the church. Uh, Hebert, a commentator, writes the following. Paul is combating a Jewish legalism that insisted upon the needs for works to be justified. James insists upon the need for works in the lives of those who have been justified by faith. Paul insists that no man can ever win justification through his own efforts, but must accept by faith the forgiveness of God 
offers him in Christ Jesus. While James demands that the man who already claims to stand in right relationship with God through faith must by a life of good works demonstrate that he has been a new creature in Christ. And so what is Paul doing? He was rooting out works that excluded and destroyed saving faith while James was stimulating a sluggish faith that minimized that, uh, that works um, that works saved. So think of it this way. I, I like this, uh, what Hebrew writes. Both James and Paul view God, uh, view good works as the proof of faith, not the path to salvation. Let me say that again. Both James and Paul view good works as the proof of faith, not the path to salvation. And so there is no contradiction here. There is harmony between James and Paul. And so we're going to see soon that when James is talking about being justified by works, he doesn't have in mind here earning our way to heaven. His point was to vindicate or give evidence that we have been saved. We know that anyone can claim to be a Christian, uh, but do we just take their word for it? Or should we expect a heart change and see fruit in their lives? And so there really isn't a debate. Faith and works are friends. And we know that works do not justify us, but they reveal that we have been born again, that we have a faith that is alive. And so let's read verse 14 again and look at that issue um, uh, with a faith that is not alive. So verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And so that's the main idea we take away Uh, from that rhetorical question that James presents. Faith that doesn't work is useless. And so the answer to the question, if that faith can save him, is no. A billion times no. This type of faith that is dead has no use, no benefit, no profit. Nothing good can come from it. That faith is like that iPhone we were talking about that can't text or call or connect to Wi-Fi. It's like a car with no brakes. You're not going to drive that. That dead faith cannot save anyone. Now, the word for save here in verse 14 is the same word in verse 21 of James chapter 1. There we learn, what is the whole saving talking about? It's talking about endurance, to get to the finish line. And so this dead faith will not get anyone to the finish line. James, throughout his letter, has been advocating for a faith that is alive. In verse 3, living faith, go to James chapter 1, verse 3. He starts it off with the topic of faith. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so James is going to argue that only that type of faith can save, one that endures. And we know there's only two types of faith. There is a dead faith or a living faith. The dead faith has no works, and the living faith has works. So what's the issue, guys? What is the issue in this church at this time? What is the issue that we see here. The issue is that many people who think they have a living faith actually have a dead faith. And so James doesn't want us to be deceived and perish. And so what he does is going to paint us a picture to fully understand what a dead faith looks like. And so let's look at that picture in verses 15 to 16. Um, I have here a little funny picture um, just to get us started. So you got someone drowning, about to die. He's got a nice little watch there. The guy sees him. Oh, no, what should I do? Oh, let me take his watch. And so he doesn't help him out. He just says, uh, I'm going to take advantage of this person. So 
it's going to be interesting when we read our illustration here. So look at verse 15 in James 2. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily, uh, daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And so here we have the illustration. And we have a new character. Right? So far we've seen the poor man, orphan and widows, rich man, the foolish man, the wise man. And right now, even though the situation is presented as a hypothetical, that doesn't mean that this couldn't have happened in the early church. And so this new character fits the context of the early church going through much persecution. There's a brother or sister in great need. This could be referring to the widow or the poor man. Regardless, what do we see? We see an increase from the last illustration. Who remembers the last illustration? What, what was the person in need? Who was it? Chapter 2. It was the poor man. Uh, yep, the poor man, remember, um, he was being discriminated against uh, because the rich person got the good seat, he got the bad seat. And so here, it's an increase. We see that the poor man in that situation had dirty clothes. Now we're presented with someone who doesn't even have clothes. And this should remind us of the Good Samaritan. If you remember from two weeks ago, the person that was mistreated, stripped of his clothing and beaten, yet he was taken care of by a stranger. Here, we have someone that is considered a brother or sister. And so they're hungry and they're in serious need, probably to the point of death. And what would a believer with living faith do? Feed that person, of course, right? Give them clothes. It's obvious. But what does the person with dead faith do? They don't help the person. But rather, it's, it's interesting here, they, they talk to the person. They're really good at doing that. Talk, talk, talk. And so the foolish man appears again in verse 16. Look what he says. Go in peace. In other words, he sends the people in great need away with a blessing. He tells them to be warmed and be filled. Rather than helping them, he tells them to be content, be satisfied. He expects them to feed themselves and to pray for God's provision. And, and why is this such a foolish statement, guys? Why is this a foolish statement for someone to just say, God bless you, you'll be fine, God would provide? Hmm? Totally uncaring, yeah. Yeah. It's just words, I like that. No works, just words, okay. Yeah, and so this is a twisted truth. Yes, God will provide, however, who does he often use? Other people to reach out to those in need. And so the foolish man is performing a religious cover-up. He doesn't see the big issue. They are called to care for others, but they are neglecting to fulfill the royal law. They have a dead faith. They do not give to the other, their own people uh, what is necessary for the body. And our body needs clothing to stay warm in the cold. It needs food to survive. And if only the foolish man would put himself in their situation, we know that they would be asking for the necessities and hoping for provision. But the fool, he doesn't listen to God's command to love your neighbor as, as yourself. Instead, he is selfish and demonstrates that he follows this worthless religion. If you remember in verse 26, go back to James 1, verse 26. It says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So they think they're religious, but they deceive their own heart. And so their lack 
of providing for those in need shows that their faith is useless. It is a dead faith. But I want you to notice this, the hypocrisy. They acted like they knew God and had time to explain to these people in great need, you're going to be fine. And they said it in a nice way. They said, God bless you. God will provide for you. While they had all these resources they could have gave them. It's like being in a hospital and telling someone who got shot or was in a T-bone car accident, they're in critical condition, and you say, just put some ice on it. You'll be fine. This is the type of faith that is incomplete. So let's read verse 17 now. Uh, chapter 2. It says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. After this illustration, what does James do? He restates the main point. And we should be able to understand that a faith that has no works is dead and cannot save. But what about the phrase we like to quote? You guys ever uh, say this? We're saved by faith alone. What about that? We are saved by faith alone. But it is a faith that is not alone. This faith will produce works. So why don't you, why don't you turn to Ephesians 2? I want you to see this in Scripture. Many times we could just uh, say some phrases and say, okay, this is what I believe, but we don't really fully understand what we're saying. And so this is really important for us. Look at Ephesians 2. We love this text, and I think this is a text we need to memorize. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so it says it there. We're saved through faith. Amen. And in verse 9, it's, it says it's not a result of works. But I want you to notice verse 10. I want you to uh, see here the action of a living faith. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. This faith will have good works that we walk in. And so we can imply from this text that true faith is a faith that works. It is one that takes care of those in need. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, that's what the blessed doer does, right? They care for the needy. Those with a dead faith, they are deceived hearers. They don't care for their brother or sister. And so what I want you to notice is that James has established what a dead faith looks like. And now he's going to address the person that may disagree. All right. But before that, any questions or comments on what we spoke about with faith versus works before we get into some applications here? Yep. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, so it's like um, it's like the Jewish custom, kind of like a like a blessing, right? So you're, you're telling them go in peace. Uh, for us in the New Testament, we would kind of use that uh, grace to you and peace to you. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of according to the Jewish custom. But that's a good question. All right, any? Yeah, you have a question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, no, good point. Did you have something, Bob? Yeah, no, that's a really important point. I like that. So essentially, as believers, uh, yes, we're called to do good works, but if we don't really have a heart change, um, we're not going to really do it with good intentions, right? It's supposed to be uh, something the Spirit of God uh, gives us that desire to do, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit, uh, but good, good point. So just two brief applications from the verse we dealt with here. Um, the first one is a question. How does your faith look like? Is it alive or dead? You can't tell, uh, you can tell it's alive if you've loved your neighbor as yourself and if you're fulfilling the royal law. But if you aren't, then it's probably clear that your faith is dead. The second application is that faith without works is useless. This type of faith will perish for eternity. Like last week we spoke about um, those who show no mercy will be shown no mercy. Here, those with faith with no works will not be saved from the coming judgment. All right, let's continue in our passage here. Uh, last couple of verses. Look at James chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Uh, let's read it. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you your faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? All right, so... In these verses, I want us to take a closer look at different translations for a difficult verse. Then look at three ways demonic faith demonstrates itself. Uh, The demonic faith is going to be fake, fearful, and foolish. So look at verse 18 again. Um, And I want you to to see the different translations up here. Uh, In the NASB, if you see the quotation marks, right? It has the whole quotation marks, everything. And then the NIV and the ESV... They stop uh, right after you have faith and I have works. And then the KJV doesn't have uh, the quotation marks. What about the Greek? Does the Greek have quotation marks? No, it does not have quotation marks. And so translators, uh, what do they do? Uh, They try to put the quotation marks where they think it fits best. And so we have different translations here. And uh, what are the differences? The KJV, it doesn't have any quotation marks. The NIV and ESV. Uh, like I said, has the beginning in verse 18, the quotation marks, and then the NASB has the whole statement in quotation marks. And so I believe the NIV and the ESV do a better job here um, because when you read this, uh, it can be very confusing. Like I said, this is probably one of the most difficult verses in the whole book of James and the whole Bible. Um, What we think is happening here is, but someone may well say. So this is someone that disagrees with James. And then look at the NIV. You have faith and I have deeds, or you have faith and I have works. 
that stops, and then James continues to talk, and he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so what's, what's going on here? Uh, so this foolish man, he disagrees with James. Uh, why does he say, you have faith and I have works? Well, he knows, uh, he thinks he knows what real faith is, uh, but his faith is fake. He, he thinks he knows the right theology and argues, hey man, faith and works, they're different. But he takes it to another level. He's going to say that it's okay to just have one or the other. His faith is fake because he believes faith is separate from works. Look at what he says. You have faith and I have works. So what is he doing? He's separating the two. And we know that faith and works are not the same, yes, but that doesn't mean they don't go together. To the foolish man, a real faith can be a faith that doesn't have works. But like James has done in the previous um, uh, lessons, he's going to correct this foolishness. And he gives two reasons why this statement uh, can't be right. Uh, the first argument is entirely practical. What does he say? He says, show me or prove it, another imperative, this time in the aorist tense, which signifies great urgency. And he says, you should already be showing me. Show me any evidence for faith without works. It can't be done. Faith that doesn't cause a person to act is a dead faith, not a saving faith. Now, the second reason James gives, it's personal, right? He says, uh, James can show what he believes by the good works that he does. And so he's an example of what true faith looks like. His faith isn't fake. And we know that a fake faith has no evidence of works. And so we know that James was in the business of works. If you remember our first lesson, what did he do? He often prayed for the church. He was a man of prayer, uh, prayer and he labored in praying for the church. The next part of fake faith is that it is fearful. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So those with a dead faith may still believe in correct theology, like we were talking about, Bob. Um, an atheist, they might even know, uh, you know, some right theology about the Bible, but that doesn't mean they really are, you know, born again. And so believing that God is one uh, is referring to the Shema. So remember, Jewish, uh, Jewish audience, and they would often recite this uh, from Deuteronomy 6.4. And so I'll tell you what it says here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so ironically, this prayer is exactly what they're not doing. Regardless, they still believed in this truth. And James points out, okay, that's a good thing, right? Of course, we need good theology. We can't have proper doxology or worship God rightly without good theology. But notice what James says next. Even demons have the correct theology. So what's the difference? Why don't you guys tell me? What's the difference between a demon that knows the truth and us? What would you say? Demons have correct theology, but what's the difference? Exactly. Demons do not do that which God wants. They do not please God. As believers, we are called to do as God has commanded us. And so a real faith has works. Demons do not do good works. If we say we believe but act like demons, then we prove that we do not truly know God. 
Now look at the last part of the verse. I find it very interesting. It says that demons not only believe, but they also shudder. This demonic faith may be filled with fear, but this fear doesn't mean they love God, right? They shudder or tremble with this proper fear of God. The word tremble refers to an uncontainable, uncontrollable, violent shaking with extreme fear. And so throughout scripture, we see demons responding with fear before Jesus. Let me give you one example. Go to Matthew 8, Matthew 8, verse 29. I love this. If anyone here is scared of demons and all that, just remember who the demons are scared of, the one that is in you. Look at Matthew 8, 29. And so talking about the demons, uh, someone's demon-possessed, and they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? For there's their correct theology. They called Jesus son of God. Have you come here to torment us before the time? And so these demons, they know correct theology. They know about eschatology, right? That on judgment day, they're going to be uh, tormented, thrown into the lake of fire. But what happens? Demons, they tremble before Jesus. And if our faith was real, we would bow before our king daily. We would seek to obey him and bring him glory. We would respect Jesus, not just with a holy fear, but with holy faith. And so a faith that has good works shows that we are true believers. The next part of fearful faith is that it is foolish. And so look at verse 20, our last verse. Uh, go back to James 2. And it says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So after James explains why true faith has works and that knowing correct theology doesn't mean we're saved, he will rebuke the foolish man. The foolish man has a faith that is foolish. He must be willing to recognize the truth that faith without works is useless. The word foolish, it can also be translated empty. And so this person, it's, he's empty. He's empty-handed, you could say. He is without works. A faith that doesn't have works, it's in vain. All the years that these religious people put into trying to look like they follow a true religion were for nothing. At the end of the verse, James uh, could be de delivering a, a pun, depending on how you translate it, right? It could read, faith that lacks works does not work. Or in other words, faith without works is workless. And so this type of faith, it's lazy, it's idle, it doesn't care for the needy. And so just think about a person that maybe you've met that was thoughtless, right? They weren't considerate or hospitable. And you don't feel welcome around them. Why? Because they have a dead faith. They're not going to be able to treat you with respect because they're spiritually dead. And that's the main issue with the fool. They do not have the spirit of God and they have not been born again. Another observation from this verse is that James answers the rhetorical question from verse 14. Go back to verse 14 in James 2. So he asks this question, right? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, right? And we should say, it has no use. In verse 20, it's like he answers it. He says it, that that faith without works is useless, all right? So he's like answering his own question. Uh, and so this foolish uh, person uh, has a foolish faith. Another characteristic of foolish faith is pride because people with this faith do not want to face the truth. This is why many Pharisees didn't repent when Jesus called them hypocrites. 
so James wants these prideful people to repent. So look at James chapter 4. We're going to read verses 6 to uh, 10. This is the heart of the letter. This is going to be the best part when we get there. Um, he really wants these hypocrites, these foolish people, these prideful people to repent. And look at the heart of the letter. Look what he says in uh, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And what does he command them to do? Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And lastly, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so the solution to this big issue is repentance. They need to ask God for mercy and humble themselves before him. Now, one last observation, if you go back to James chapter 2, verse 20. What does James do? Like all good teachers, he repeats the truth that faith without works is useless. He just said in verse 17, see there in verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And he's going to also uh, repeat it later. Uh, if you look at verse 26, so also faith without works is dead. And so repetition of the truth is needed for those who are acting foolishly. Uh, I don't know if you met someone and they just, they're very hard-headed. They don't want to listen to wisdom. And you got to tell them over and over again. Got to clean your bed, clean your bed, clean your bed. Um, and they don't do it. And you remind them so many times. And so what James is doing here is repeating the truth um, to spiritually wake these people up. And so that's what he does. All right, any questions or comments on what we spoke about in verses 18 to 20? find it interesting with the demons, you know, that they shudder. Yeah. Are you, are you looking at James chapter 4? Where are you looking at? Oh, when I mentioned to repent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think what's happening during this time is there's many religious people. Um, obviously, Jesus experienced this with the Pharisees, that they were all about the external, not the internal, right? They didn't have a heart change. They were just looking to do things. Um, and so what James is trying to tackle is those that are being deceived by thinking that it's all about um, the external appearance, right? It's all about how you look and, and, and how you act in the sense of in a religious manner. There's no real heart change. There's no real desire to obey God. Um, and so the repentance that, that really James is getting at is um, repent of any hypocrisy, right? And so he's been given a lot of examples of how they've been hypocrites, right? They haven't been helping those in need. Um, they haven't been cleansed from the world. They aren't doers of the word. Uh, so there's so many things uh, that James is trying to tackle. Uh, but yeah, very good question. Um, and I think as we go throughout the letter, we're going to see more of that. Uh, but any other questions? Or Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and so James is going to say, okay, you, you say you've been saved. Let me see the evidence. Show me the evidence. And many times as you go throughout James, right, he says the religious person does not bridle the tongue. And so we get examples of what a true believer looks like, right? They're able to control the tongue to a certain extent um, because they have the spirit of God in them. So very good points. So let me just give you some applications here as we close. Um, and we'll finish up here. So the next application is another question. How's your doctrine? Right? Is it correct? You believe the truth. That's good. But has it produced a heart change? We can know so much, yet be so far away from the kingdom of God. And may we not be deceived. The last application is faith that works is useful. That faith will endure for eternity. Like we learned last week, mercy triumphs over judgment. Living faith will triumph over dead faith. God will have compassion on those who care for the needy. So in conclusion, we observe the issue of saying we have a faith with no works. We were corrected by this illustration that shows the uselessness of that type of faith and explained that knowing the truth is not enough. A dead faith is like a demonic faith. This type of faith is religious but does not obey God's commands. James wants us to recognize the foolishness and deception of fake faith. Only then will we be able to see our need for a heart change. And this heart change should produce in us the desire to care for those in need. We will want to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we will do it. Our faith can either be like a dead phone that can't text, call, or connect to Wi-Fi, or it can be a faith that is fully charged to obey God's will. What does a living faith look like? James will give us two examples in the coming weeks, but for now, I'll just give you one. Maybe it's just simply calling or texting your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ to see what they need. You know someone in great need? Pray for them. Provide for them. Visit them. Do all you can for them. Love them. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you uh, that you are a good God that has provided for us. And Lord, you call us to reach out to others and see how we can help them and provide for them. Lord, give us that heart change daily when we see someone in need that we don't just get cold and, and say, well, that's not my child. Help us to care as, as if, Lord, if, if our kid was in that situation, we would want to help um, and see that love for our neighbor. Help us to love uh, strangers. Help us to love uh, people we just met. Give us that conviction, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.